And I think it would be really appropriate just to say a big thanks to Gav and to Jez for everything that they've um, done for us to be their talk. So thank those guys. Uh, yeah, I think, I think Jez said a week ago at church that, you know, coming to the weekend away would be worth it. This would be one of the most uh, engaging and personally helpful weekend ways that we've had, and I, and I think that's um, been the case. So um, we've got one more to go. And what we're doing today in this final session is uh, it's a bit different to the past four that we've been doing, looking at one particular idol. What we're doing today, uh, as we finish off our time here, you're trying to spend some time thinking a bit more outward and about how the things that we've learned over this weekend will affect those around us when we go back to Sydney. And so before we get into that, though, I just want to read, um, I want to read a passage we're going to be looking at today. If you've got a Bible, uh, you want to open it up to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, and we're going to be starting at verse 22, and it'll be up there as well. And this is, yeah, in a, in a chunk of Acts where Paul's been traveling around different, uh, different cities um, preaching the gospel. And this is what happens when Paul goes to the city of Athens. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he would judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, like I said, over this week we've been thinking really in particular about how the way that our hearts are wired to worship affects us as Christians and, and all the different things that are competing with God for our affections and our desires. But today, I don't want to just think about what this means for Christians, but for people more generally. And the reason for this is that, that idolatry isn't a Christian issue, it's a people issue. Everybody worships. When you go back to Sydney in a couple of hours' time, you might be thinking, like, what's going on is I'm leaving this place of worship where we've been around people worshipping together and going just back to a secular society where people aren't really thinking about worship. But on the contrary, we're going back to a world of worshippers. Everywhere we look in Sydney, we see shrines built up to different gods. We will see billboards um, proclaiming some great god that you must serve with your life. On every radio station you'll tune into, you'll hear songs of worship, of people, of things, of lifestyles. 
when you go on Facebook or Instagram, again, you'll just see the countless things that people are worshipping and calling us to worship. And the tragedy of this reality isn't that it makes being a Christian harder. It's not that it means that the church is in decline or anything like that. The tragedy of our society being completely saturated with so many false gods is that it means that there are people who day by day are worshipping something that is leading them ever closer to hell. The biggest problem of idolatry isn't a question of how it affects our life now. It's an issue of eternity. And this is particularly the case as we, as we look out for other people. As Christians, we're going to struggle with things that, that we're going to worship. And we might, we might be inclined to, to really care what people think of us and, and worship approval. And that might make life um, uncomfortable and unpleasant and we want to redirect our worship back to God. But if we're Christians, we're, we're ultimately saved. Back in Sydney, there is millions of people who do not have the God of the Bible in the picture. They worship other things and they're in grave danger. And so, as we look at this story in Acts chapter 17 that we're going to be looking at today, you see this, this story of Paul going into a city, um, not, not unlike Sydney, where there, where there are people worshipping all kinds of gods. Where people in Athens are worshipping the gods of, of, of sex, of war, of the sun, of rain, of whatever, finding whatever God they think is going to give them what they want. And Paul goes to this place because he knows unless these people find Jesus, find the one true God, they're doomed. And so what I want to do today, in in just a short while, is is walk through three things that Paul does in Acts chapter 17. As he he walks into a city of idols, uh, what he actually does about trying to to change people's worship from worshipping a false god to a true god. And I've got three kind of headings that we're going to be working through today. What Paul does is, um, and what we're to do is to firstly identify what people's idols are, then to displace those idols, and then replace them with Jesus. So identify, displace, replace. And so if you look in that passage, if you've got it in front of you, the first thing Paul does as he arrives in Athens is he identifies what it is people are worshipping. Verse 22 says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Paul doesn't just charge in like guns blazing, like first thing he gets in there just starts talking, talking, talking. He walks into the city and he looks around and he sees around him a bunch of signs of what are the things that these people in the city are worshipping. Now, I don't know, I think it, it might be more, this might be more an issue for men than for women, but I don't know if, if other, other guys here have had this thing of, trying to solve a problem before you know what the problem is. I just know for me, every time like the internet like, just stops working for a minute at home, rather than going through like, the diagnostic tool that computers come with to help figure out what's going on, it's straight to the, to the router, unplug it, plug it back in. It's got to work every time. If that doesn't work, I'm just frustrated and I give up. Well, there's this phenomenon you see when, you, you know, when there's... like Right now, what would happen if, if someone's car didn't start after, this, after the weekend away, they'd open up the bonnet and every guy would just go and crowd around... And just start being like, oh, I've got it. Like, I know how to fix it. Have you, done, have you checked the battery? Have you, have you checked the oil? Have you done this? And it's normally just something that's worked at one point some years past that you've kind of locked in your head, yeah, this is the, the silver bullet. I can fix a car. I fixed a car before. And, and I think sometimes when it comes to, to evangelism and, and trying to point people towards Jesus, we can, we can try to take this, this, you know, this silver bullet approach. There's just one way to do this. And I think I grew up... Um, like my Christian background is hearing, I just remember growing up hearing a bunch of kind of 
silver-bullet gospel explanations. If you explain the gospel like this, it's going to work, people are going to believe, it's what you need to do. But people aren't a bunch of just blank slates until they start worshipping Jesus. Every single person has a complex web of things that are affecting their desires, their decisions, what they value. And the end task of of a Christian in in evangelism is always to point people to Jesus. That's the same end goal for everyone. But it's going to look different uh, depending on who the person is. Convincing a a Muslim person who worships Allah to renounce that God and worship Jesus is going to look very different to convincing someone who worships their work to renounce that and start worshipping Jesus. The end end worship of Jesus is the same, but the journey people are going to take is very different. And so our first step that we need to do with with people that we are friends with, work with, family, whatever, people we care about and we want them to to get rid of whatever they're worshipping and turn to Jesus is to actually start by actually really figuring out what is it that makes this person tick? What what are they really worshipping? So, for example, the last two days we've heard of four deep idols, kind of idols beneath the idols. So, you know, we had um, comfort and and approval and uh, power and control. And, 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 and these things are, are going to really influence kind of what people might think they need in Jesus or don't need in him. But even more surface than that, like if I'm sure you, you realize when you go home, there are people around you that some of them, they, they really worship relationship and sex. Others, it's more about money and, and success. Others, it might just simply be a, be a hobby or, or, or cars or just, just anything could be this place of God that people have. And so what I think we need to just do as we go home is just be ready to listen, to ready, be ready to actually look at people and, and hear from them as they speak and be questioning, what, what is it for this person? What have they made into God? And, and one, of the, one of the tools I've come across over the last couple of weeks in preparing this, there's a guy called David Powelson, and he, has a, he writes a lot about idolatry, and he has a bunch of, kind of things that he calls X-ray questions questions that can get to the heart of kind of what really matters to you. And he writes them for a Christian person to do on themselves to identify um, their idols. But I've just changed them to make them third person. And so right now, I'm just going to read a bunch of questions. And what I want you to do is, even just in your head right now, think of someone. Just think of someone who's not a Christian, whether a family, a close friend, someone that you're going to be seeing probably in the next few weeks in some capacity. And someone you already, I guess, know well enough to hopefully answer some of these questions. And just as I ask this question... Um, just answer them in your head for that person. See if you can work out what might be one of the two, one or two of the main idols in their lives. What do they worry about the most? What is their greatest nightmare? What thing, what relationship, if they lost it, would lead them to seriously question whether or not they should go on living? What do they use to comfort themselves when things go bad or get difficult? Who or what do they look to for comfort when it's a bad day? What do they do to cope? What preoccupies them? What do they frequently talk about? What makes them angry? What, of what are they the proudest? What do they want to be known for? How do they like to be identified or labelled? When are they happiest? What are they working towards? One of you start thinking through those questions, and you probably need more time to really just think hard and, and analyse those. I'm actually going to have some time to do that later on. Uh, for me, I think as I go through those lists and think about people, it's often 
uh, I guess, some of the things that go wrong that really reveal what the idol is. It's when, it's when something isn't working out for them that I think you get one of the greatest insights into what matters for them. When they're sad or hurt or anxious or frustrated, you can really see what they're thinking about. So maybe another really helpful question is to ask, um, what does this person's complaint reveal about where this person is looking for something that only Jesus can provide? I think is if we go back to life and, and, and have this in the back of our head, I'm not saying you go back and be like, oh, hey, everyone, I've got a survey for you, and you just start laying out for them. But to just be, just be conscious of this and just thinking, you know, people will just talk all day long. We're, we're constantly hearing people speak around us. What does it reveal about what they value? When, when someone's just every week, it's the same thing. They're complaining about how bad their latest Tinder date was on the weekend and how it's not working out and why it's just not fair that, that they, they just can't find the right person. Like, what, what is that revealing about what they, what they really want, what they really value? When someone is just, the, like, you just have to be afraid to, to mention anything to do with the Sydney housing prices because this person's just going to start just going raging about how they can't afford a place. Um, what, what's that revealing about where they put their value? Uh, if you really want to test if that's an idol for someone, just tell them to stop buying avocados. And if they start yelling at you, it means that they definitely are. <laughs> um, see, as we go through life, we've got to be listening and identifying what is it these people worship. That's the first step. You don't just go in charging and talking and and just, you know, speaking down at people, but to actually listen and observe. The second thing, though, that we see in Acts 17, with, when Paul goes to Athens, is after he's identified what's going on, he's seen the idols around, he, he, he specifically kind of breaks down some of the issues with the idols that they're worshipping. He displaces them. Um, so he, he says a few things in this, in this verse. If you've got it open in front of you, I'm going to just jump through it. In verse 24, he talks about their idols as, as being as living in temples made by people. That's a key feature of them, that they, they kind of need people to make a space for them to kind of have somewhere to go. Verse 25, um, what he's saying there is that, that the idols that the people in Athens worship have needs. They have needs that people need to fill. So basically what these idols do is they take. They take your sacrifices. You've got to go and give up your, your crops or your lamb to give to them. You've got to, you just got to give them the things and they take and ask and ask and ask. Um, in verse 29, it says this. It says, um, being, then in, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. He's saying, look, you're worshipping gods, um, but just stop and think about it. They're just made of rocks and metals. They're, they're things that you make. And you look at them, and then they're, just, they're made to look like things that are around. They, they might look like a bear or like a person or like some combination or something, but, but really, they're just, they're just things that people have produced and they're asking things of you. He's basically just trying to say, look, just, just stop and think about what you're doing. It's crazy. You're, you're worshipping something that is just not worthy of your worship and isn't going to do anything for you. He equips himself with arguments to show the foolishness of worshipping these idols. Now, this resonates with me. I love exposing frauds for what they are. Um, I, I spend a lot of time on Gumtree. Um, I, I think I'm on there as much as I am on Facebook. Like, if I'm just bored at a bus stop, I go on Gumtree and just see what's going on. Um, and, and I find a lot of good stuff on there. Um, but, and I've also sell stuff on there. It's um, the go-to. It's when you're selling something that's not good enough to sell on eBay. I think that's the way to, way to put it. So you try to sell a car on Gumtree, and it doesn't, this doesn't happen on car sales or any other reputable source, the first day of listing a vehicle, you're going to get a message from someone, and it's going to basically say this. I love your car. 
I want your car. I, I want it so much that I'm willing to pay over what you're asking. I'll give you an extra $1,000. The issue is I'm actually situated in an oil rig at the moment, and so I'm going to need you to send me a bunch of details, uh, your bank details, your PayPal, and we'll get this sorted out, and then after the money's all sorted, I'm going to send my agents to go and pick up the car from you. Happens every single time. Um, hopefully, it must work on some people, which is really sad, but most people, I think they see that and be like, there's no way someone in an oil rig is going to buy my dodgy, beat-up car. It's not going to happen, and so they ignore it. I don't ignore it. Um, I would say, yes, that is a great deal. Let me know how I can proceed with this matter. And we start just exchanging details, and I get enough together, and then I send it off a police report to the police. Um, thank you. <laughs> Derek, Matt, I'm like, I'm not getting paid by the police, but I'm doing a lot of the work for you. Um, and, uh, and I think, look, I think this is the reason, I was reflecting this way, this is why I like the game Mafia. If you haven't, um, if you haven't played Mafia, you're a holier Christian than most. Um, I think that, you know, the, the mark of a good game is when you walk away with a sick feeling in your stomach and the sense that you've deeply hurt your friends and broken down years of trust and relationship. <laughs> but uh, if you don't know the game, um, in Mafia, you've got two or three people that are not what they seem. You've got, you've got a village of just ordinary people, but a few mafia who you don't know about who are trying to sabotage and kill the village. And it's fun to be the mafia, but I actually really enjoy not being the mafia because one, you don't have to lie, but two, you get to actually just analyze and try to spot who, who's the sneaky rat in the midst. Um, who's, who's the person who's saying something outside of their normal, their normal way of speaking? Who's, got, who's said an inconsistency? You know, they're, they're protecting one person in a moment and then trying to get rid of them the next. You're trying to work out what's going on. So then eventually you can just, you, after watching, just work up the courage to say, you know, you, you sneaky rat, you, you louse, you yellow-bellied, white-livered son of a dung beetle, what have you done? And then and get them out. But exposing them for what, for what they are. Now, that's why this bit of what Paul does kind of resonates with me. Like, just the courage to get up in, in Athens and be like, you've put a lot of effort into your idols, but they're just made of metal and they don't do anything for you. Like, bam, like... Um, but, but there's something in that that's good. And, and Paul is very conscious about what he's doing because um, he does a similar thing at a few different times. And there's this verse in 2 Corinthians 10 uh, where Paul actually outlines the way that he wages war. Um, this idea that people, there's these different gods vying for allegiance. The way that Paul wages war is this. It'll come on the screen. He says uh, in verse 3, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And so you hear that verse that's so far, and you think, you know, well, what's, what's Paul going to be using? What does he fight with? What, what are, how does he go into this hostile world and fight? Like, does he have some, like, magic spirit powers which just kind of zaps people here and there? Like, what's this power he's talking about? And then what he says is, he says, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. See, Paul, in all of his letters, in all of his, these accounts in Acts, he has these, these arguments. He, he's, he, he wants to convince people of the truth, and he wants to expose things that are lies and, and not true and done in darkness. And that's what he's doing in Athens. And we need to be equipped to do this. We actually need to, be, to have these weapons that Paul speaks of that he's actually able to demolish any notion, any idea that would stop someone worshipping God. And I think one of the biggest notions, the biggest ideas that stops people in our society worshipping God is simply the idea that we can get ultimate meaning and satisfaction from somewhere else. 
And if someone believes that, it is really hard to get through to them with the gospel. But think, you know, if you've got someone who's living for success and for power, and at age 30, they've been promoted every year for the last five years, they're earning more and more money, they're gaining more and more influence, and to top it off, they've been able to use this money to buy a nice house in a nice area that most people aren't able to do, and, and, and going on all the holidays they want, everything's going great for them. Hearing them, hearing that Jesus brings satisfaction is going to sound very, very weak. Now, they already have a source of satisfaction. Things are going exactly the way that they want. For the person who idolizes um, relationships and, and, and affirmation, who maybe after a period of singleness has finally started dating a guy who she's in love with and he's in love with her and she's planning their, 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 their wedding and the life they're going to have together, for them, hearing that Jesus loves them, it's like, ah, well, like, I've got love, like I've got this other source of that and it's working just fine for me. And, and experience would say that on the flip side, people who something's falling apart for, maybe they're going through a, through a divorce or they've received a, a diagnosis of something, something bad or they've lost their job or they're in financial trouble, are often more receptive and more open to think, oh, this isn't working for me, I actually need, I need something else. So what, what, part of the work that we need to do is to actually go and expose in people the problems with what they're worshipping. Because they, they may not see it until it's too late. Over this weekend, I'm guessing for nearly everyone here, at some point in one of the four talks we've heard from Gabo Jez, something would have been said that would have just been this like aha moment, this, this sense of, oh, they've, they've articulated something, I guess I've always felt deep down about the way that my heart's wired or what I'm worshipping or like... I, knew this, I guess I knew this thing didn't satisfy, but they've really made sense of kind of why it falls short. Um, and that's really helpful. That's really helpful to actually say, to consciously say, oh, I guess I am living for, for approval of people. And, but if I go down that road, it's going to mean that I'm always going to be just kind of self-conscious and, and disappointed and have a low view of myself. So I need to, to turn elsewhere. But we, we get the benefit of that because we come on a church weekend away. For most people in Sydney, they don't have anyone that's going to say to them what Jez and Gav have said to us. So that responsibility is on us to be equipped with the same amount of forethought and care and, and, and everything that Gavin Jez have done to do it for everyone else. And I actually think that's a really hard task. I think it's hard to get up here and, you know, with, with notes you've prepared, talk to people. But to be ready on the fly, just back home, when an opportunity arises, to say to someone like one-to-one, hey, look, this is, what you're doing is going to hurt you, is really difficult. And I don't think I'm going to say anything that's going to make it easy, but... But just to say, we need to be prepared to do that. I think there are two questions that we need to already know the answer for, for the people that we care about and we want to to point to Jesus, which is firstly, how does the idol that they are worshipping, how does it ultimately fail? Um, Where does it go wrong? How does it fall short? And secondly, how uh, how will worshipping this idol ultimately actually do harm to the worshipper? So firstly, it's to be able to say, you know, how does this idol fail? We need to know and actually believe that these things people are living for are going to fail. So for the, for the person who's smashing in his career, he's got the great house, um, everything's just going really good. Like, if we don't believe that that's going to fall short somewhere, why would we ever try to tell them otherwise? We need to actually stop and think about, at the end of the day, even if he gets a good run for 60 years, the money and the power, it's not going to do him any favours at the last day. Uh, and, and more often than not, it's actually going to fall apart before then. It's going to cause damage in other parts of of his life, in his relationships, in his general satisfaction. Like, all the statistics show that the more money you get doesn't correlate to more and more happiness. On, on the contrary, people get more and more depressed with the more money they have. 
And so to, just to, to know that and be prepared to, when a conversation gets close to that and you see an opportunity, to be ready to go in and say that. To say, look, whatever it is, having control of everything in your, in your life or having a comfortable existence or getting the things that you want or, or having people like you is never going to work and this is why. And we need to spend some time thinking about what that is for the particular people in our lives we want to reach. Um, but more than that, and I think sometimes even more importantly, how, showing how worshipping this idol will hurt them. There are plenty of things in life that are good if you just use them in the right way, but if you turn them into a God thing, they're going to do you damage. So it's being prepared, and I think it's hard to do, but it's an act of love to say to someone that we see, worshipping something that's going to hurt them, to actually kind of in, to call them on it. Um, so to, when you do see someone who is worshipping power, uh, to think back to what Jez said in, in his talk yesterday about um, some of the things that's going to do. If you make power and achievement everything, you're going to turn people into, um, into tools to achieve what you want. And, and so actually when you see someone doing that, to actually take them aside and be like, hey, I've just noticed, and it's like, I've just noticed that sometimes that you just seem to kind of walk over people, um, that, that you're kind of using people in, in, some of the, in some of the things you're doing. Is that really what you want to do? And actually kind of call them on that. When you see someone just, you know, just chasing after comfort, and, and maybe even you notice that they're, they're so concerned with their, their comfort that they're cutting out people in their life that are hard. Um, that they're not really, they're just stingy, stingy with their time, stingy with their money. Um, to maybe say, look, hey, I've just noticed that you've become a bit of a stingy person. Now, that's going to take some relationship to do, right? Um, like, I've, I've, I've thought about it, and I think, I think of the people in my life I can say that to, and there are, and there are, there are non-Christians in my life that in the right context, I could actually say that to, and they would probably appreciate it because that's not actually what they want. Just like in the same context, it happened in community group and church, we call each other on stuff. People in our society don't have people that are going to call them and, and warn them of some of the dangers of what they're doing. Or, or, or particularly with it when it's something of addiction. Um, people, you see someone that's turning again and again to buying stuff, um, and you, it's putting them in financial problems because they just buy things to make themselves feel good. Um, or, or, or turn to alcohol or to drugs or whatever it is. But to, to show them how making this the ultimate is going to hurt them. Um, the same would be true of, of, of approval and control. When you, when you see someone who's just super, super stressed about what people think, um, and, and it's, it's crippling them and it's, it's making life hard for them, to maybe say to them, hey, do you wonder if you're putting way too much emphasis on what people think of you? That's probably an easier one to say. Um, to, to say, like, have you, have you overset the market? Are you, are you getting your value from the wrong place? To be able to say that to people is going gonna, is gonna to help kind of weaken in them what some of the biggest things in their lives are. And, and on top of that, I think to have in our heads, have in our heads that, and remember that the greatest way that idols hurt people is the fact that, and this is going to be more on, on us to, to go and talk to them, is that if people keep these idols that at the end of the day, they're, they're looking at an eternity without God. That's the ultimate harm. The ultimate harm an idol does is it doesn't address the sin problem. It doesn't address our greatest need to have our, our sin taken away and our relationship with God restored. So again, we have some time to go around and think about that in a little bit. But the final thing that Paul does in, in Acts 17 is he replaces the idol. And I think this is maybe the hardest, the hardest aspect of it. Uh, Paul's aim in going to Athens isn't just to knock down their current idols and then walk away. He's not just to rain on their parade, be negative, cynical, and then leave. His aim is to get them to, 
to re- replace their worship and to actually worship the only God who is actually worthy of the worship we have. And so he tells them of the God who gives life, the God who made all the people in the world, the God who is actually the giver, not the taker, the God who is beyond us, not underneath us. He, he wants them to see that there is a God that's worthy of their worship. That he doesn't just want to knock down what they have and leave a void. Because ultimately, that's not the way our hearts work. Our hearts will just never be vacant. They'll always find something to worship. Um, this, like, to illustrate this, the back room at church, if you, you know, when you come into the church building, you've got that room on the left where the photocopier is. Sometimes it's referred to as the office. Other times it's referred to as the garbage dump of Balmain. Um, is this place where, no matter what you do, it just attracts every bit of junk under the, under the world. You might walk in there and think it never gets cleaned. But it gets cleaned every Sunday morning. <laughs> but you can just be sure, you clean that room on a Sunday morning, you get everything out, by 6 p.m. it's going to be full. There'll be food wrappers, there'll be water bottles, there'll be just random bits of furniture, and just, just other junk. You know, like, so if you've, got, if you've borrowed something from someone at church, don't worry about returning it to them personally. Just dump it in the office, and probably in the next few months they'll find it in there. If you're cleaning out your room at home and you find a bunch of really rubbish Christian books from the 90s that you're, you know, you're never going to read again. Don't, don't fill up your recycling bin. Just dump it in the church office. Um, if you walk into church one day and the counter cleanup's on and you see a, a nice set of pots and pans that you might use at home and you pick them up and then you realise, oh, actually, you don't really want these. 